All right, let's get into God's Word together. I encourage you to either grab a device with the Bible on it or open up your Bible there in your home and let's study God's Word together. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, We're going to look at uh, the last couple of verses of chapter 12 and then we're going to get into chapter 13 verses uh, 1 through uh, 21 um, as we close out our study in Hebrews today. And I hope you've enjoyed this time together. I hope it's been beneficial to you. You know, one of the songs... um, that we are singing at church on Sunday morning. So um, you're watching this on Sunday uh, On Sunday morning. Our service starts at 11. One of the songs that we are planning to sing is, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, that is one of my favorite Christmas carols, and uh, one of them. And uh, one of the, the, the well-known lines, of course, and that is, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him. And that's really one of the more famous, well-known uh, Christmas carol lyrics of all of them, right? And um, God's people are to be a people who adore Jesus. Now, what do we mean by adore? Well, it, it can mean a couple of things. Adore, we can say adore like as into love, and we can say adore as into worship. And we're to do both. We are to love and to worship Jesus, our King. I'm reminded um, of in Matthew 2. We read about when the wise men came to visit uh, Jesus when he was a small child. And it says in Matthew 2.11, it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. That's a proper response to Jesus, right? Fall down and worship him, and offer him gifts to, to, to worship him, and to open your heart and your life before him. Let's not fall into the trap this Christmas season of thinking that adoring Jesus is merely about thinking nice thoughts about him and saying nice things about him. Uh, Worshiping Jesus, worshiping God is about more than what we say or the motions that we go through, the boxes that we check. It gets down to the nitty-gritty of how we live our lives every day. Uh, Worship is to be a lifestyle. So this Christmas, don't fall into a trap of confusing sentimentality about Jesus with worship of Jesus. You, You can be sentimental about Christian things and not be worshipful of King Jesus. Uh, Let's not fall into the trap of of being reflective um, but not being obedient. We're called to obey Jesus and worship Jesus. The the baby in the manger that we talk so much about in the Christmas season grew up to be the man on the cross who died for our sins and rose from the dead. He is the risen King. He's worthy of our worship today. He's worthy of our obedience today. And we are to worship him with how we live our lives. Today we are finishing our study in Hebrews, as I mentioned. And, you know, as you've seen, it's a theologically rich book. And chapter 13 is very practical about living our theology out. Remember, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, and they've been, some of them have been, they've been persecuted to some degree. Uh, some of them are actually considering retreating from the Christian faith, going back to just kind of like old covenant Judaism. Uh, you know, hey, we, we, we've testified that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to go back to looking for the Messiah, right? Uh, they're thinking of walking away, and throughout the book, the author extols Jesus as better. He's the better high priest, the better sacrifice. He enacts a new and better covenant. He warns them about apostatizing, how there's nowhere else to go in the judgment that awaits those who profess Christ, who never actually truly, genuinely trust Christ 
false converts, if you will, who then go back out into the world, who say they knew Jesus or know Jesus, and then they deny Jesus and they walk away from him forever. He, he warns about the judgment awaiting, and he, he encourages the believers in that church that, hey, those who know Christ, we don't walk away, we don't fall away, we don't apostatize. By God's grace, we persevere. And so a major theme throughout the book is perseverance. But all through the book, he extols Jesus as better. And when you get into chapter 12, verses 18 through 28, he, he contrasts the new covenant with the old covenant, showing the, the superiority of the new covenant, this new and better covenant enacted by the blood of Jesus. And he warns of the coming judgment and how if those in the Old Testament that refused to heed God's voice, if they didn't escape judgment, neither will those today who refuse to heed, heed God's voice. And he warns that a day of earth-shaking judgment is coming. And this is what he says in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So as those who have trusted in Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, we, we receive a kingdom, he says, that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God and in light of our God, His kingdom, and our heavenly citizenship, He says we are to offer to God acceptable worship. And that's how chapter 12 ends. Offer to God acceptable worship. Now, a lot of people believe when you get into chapter 13, some commentators teach that he, what he is doing here is he's kind of unpacking what it looks like to offer to God acceptable worship, or some translation might say, uh, translations might say acceptable service. Um, Dr. Al Mohler points that out, that when you get into chapter 13, in his commentary, he points out, this is what it looks like. I was... Um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a very um, practical chapter, but in a lot of ways it does flesh that out for us. And, it's, and, and this kind of verse and this kind of teaching following it, it does remind us a little bit of back over in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews tw chapter 12, um, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. And so the Apostle Paul was saying there back in Hebrews chapter 12, he's saying, look, how you live your life and what you do with your body, um, that's a part of Christian worship. Christian worship is not just about what you do on Sunday morning when you sing songs, hear a sermon, um, give money into an offering plate, fellowship with other Christians. It's a 24-7 deal. Uh, it's how we live our lives. We live our lives presenting our lives to God in worship, uh, in reverence before God, in obedience to God, not in order to earn God's favor, but because uh, we because we, we are right with God, because we do know God, because we do love God, because He has reconciled us to Himself. In light of that, with gratitude and thanksgiving, we seek to live lives of obedience. We seek to live lives uh, that honor Christ. And in a lot of ways, Hebrews 13, which gets very practical, you know, one of the things I like to do sometimes is look and see how other pastors and preachers preached through these things, and it was, uh, uh, I think it was J.D. Greer, who, who he preached a, a message out of Hebrews uh, 13 that he called practical Christianity. A lot, a lot of truth to that. Uh, it, it's just a very practical look at what good Christian life looks like. So today what I'm calling this is lives of acceptable worship. Just building off that idea because um, this is kind of what it looks like. It's not all-encompassing. There are things not covered in Hebrews 13. They're a part of living our lives of acceptable worship. But when you think about what he says here at the end of chapter 12, when he says we are to 
offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And when you think about how in the New Testament that we know worship is more than about a, an hour on Sunday, it's about how we live our lives. And then when you look at just how encompassing chapter 13 is of our lives and of our doctrine and all these sort of things, um, it really does connect. And so this, this idea of how we are to live the Christian life out, um, it is a picture of what it looks like um, to live a life of acceptable um, worship. So what we're going to do is I'm going I'm to give you kind of five keys to this lives of acceptable worship that he touches on here. The ones that he wanted to touch on because of things that they were dealing with there in light of what he had taught uh, about Jesus there the, the, uh, in, the, um, in the book of Hebrews about um, his uh, being our high priest, um, a better sacrifice, enacting a new and better covenant, all those things. We're going to, to look at that today, and it's in, in some great truths that very applicable to our culture and to our context today. Um, things that he wanted to address there are things that we need to address, many of these things, um, all these things, um, in, our, in our culture today, and what it looks like living out the Christian life is this life of worship before God and how it does touch upon every part of our life. So look with me, starting in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. He says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So number one, number one, we need to love and serve others well. That, that whole section really is talking about how we relate to other people. We need to, in particular, in the body of Christ, but even outside, he talks about strangers, but just the idea of loving and serving others well. He says, he says let brotherly love continue. Not let it begin, right? It, it's, it, it flows from the believer. We love other believers. It's to define the body of Christ. People will know we belong to Christ by what? Our love for one another. So he says, let that love continue. And then he gets very specific, and he talks about showing hospitality to, to strangers. Uh, the word hospitality throughout the New Testament means a love of strangers, and hospitality was critical in the first century. Um, the inns, you know, their, their, their hotels, so to speak, um, were either very unsafe or very expensive. And so as the gospel was spreading from town to town, village to village, place to place, they were dependent on hospitality of believers, the hospitality of other believers, taking people in, evangelists in, uh, the apostles in, whoever was going around sharing the gospel and taking it in to places and encouraging the church and things of that nature um, because you know it was either spend a whole lot of money um, for a place to stay, and many of these people didn't have a lot of money, or um, stay at somewhere that was very unsafe. And so hospitality was a very big deal. He, he, no, he notes here that some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this is likely a reference to Abraham now because he, he loves to call back to the Old Testament. Back in Genesis 18, you can go read that story there. And, and the big point is, is that we're to love and serve everyone. It's more blessed to give than to receive, as Jesus said. Um, as somebody pointed out, we, we don't really know what God's going to do and what we're going to get out of it. Uh, that, that we, we give, we, we, we serve. God many times will bless us. Um, as we do so, and he points out that, you know, look at, look at Abraham who showed hospitality um, or in, to others who, have, he says, have shown hospitality to angels unawares. And he says, so he says, show hospitality, engage in this, um, um, uh, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't, don't shy away from that, embrace it. Now, hospitality is more about invite, than about inviting friends over for dinner. Um, it's about living a life that is welcoming right, and inviting people into your, your life. Um, Christ welcomed us, so we welcome all. Uh, Christ gave his life, so we give what we have. 
He gave his best, so we give our best. That's a way to think about living a hospitable life. So we need to be hospitable both individually and corporately. We want our our church um, to be a, a welcoming church. Right, We don't have visitors, we have guests, and we should always be expecting guests. Uh, so we seek to provide clean and safe and excellent uh, environments filled with warmth and joy. And, and, and then we individually, we, need to, we seek to live our lives that way um, as we want to point people and invite people um, to Christ. He also talks about showing a concern for the imprisoned and mistreated. You know, During persecution, believers may be imprisoned for their faith. Um, we see this in Acts, all through the book of Acts. Uh, believers are not to shrink back or avoid or neglect or forget people uh, when, when they are imprisoned in, in and in, in, in when, in, when they're persecuted for their faith or when they're, when they're hurting, when they're being mistreated. Even, um, he says, we're to think about them, remember them just as if we were there with them. Just as if we were there with them. And it's just a reminder of the connection we have in the body of Christ. Our lives are to be concerned with others. We're not to be inward focused, but he's calling us to be focused on loving and serving others well. And this section calls us to that, to love one another, to love the stranger, to love the one suffering for the faith and being mistreated. Christian love always pulls us towards others, always pulls us towards others. And we, it's so easy, it's natural for all of us to get very inward focused. Our, our flesh wants to get inward focused to, and, if, and, and, and if, out of sight, out of mind. And, um, and, and so we have to, it's, we have to constantly um, come before the Lord and confess uh, when our lives get that way and ask him to help us to be uh, more loving and more service-oriented towards others and, 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 to, and to remember those who are suffering and remember those who are hurting and to, and to push our lives that way and to keep our lives open um, to others. But we can't do any of these things without margin in our lives, right? So we have to create margin in our lives where we can have time to love and serve others. Uh, these things require, require some sort of uh, sacrifice from time to time in terms of whether it's financially or time-wise or whatever it may be. There, we, have to, we have to have margin to be able to do these things. And so it's a reminder for us in this Christmas season to slow down, to think about others, to, to engage others, to love others, to serve others, um, especially to look for opportunity um, and to, to, to serve those in need when we have opportunity to do so. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So he jumps from, we talked about loving and serving others well to number two, honor marriage and pursue purity. Like I said, uh, living for Christ, the Christian faith, living a life of worship, it touches every part of life. Uh, So he goes from hospitality, remembering the imprisonment to marriage. Uh, It's diverse topics. And here he's talking about the need to value and to esteem marriage, to honor it can mean to respect it, it can mean to value it, um, to treat it as precious. Believers are to treat marriage as precious no matter how the culture treats it. Marriage is God's idea. It's God's design. One way you value it is by protecting it from adultery, from impurity, by keeping the marriage bed undefiled, pursuing purity, sexual purity in your marriage. Keeping the marriage bed undefiled is, is, is a very, uh, it's, a, it's a phrase he's using to talk about sexual purity. And he, he goes on to say that God's going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And his point is, we need to be pursuing purity Yes, before and, and in marriage. The, the sexual ethic of the Bible is just as rev, relevant, if you will, in 2020 as it was in the first century. 
nothing's changed. God's standards haven't changed uh, for the believer uh, in, his sexu- in the sexual ethics that he calls us to. Immorality and adultery rebel against the design of God. They, and they sow and they reap absolute destruction in lives. This command is countercultural in a lot of ways. Sexual immorality isn't even considered immoral in today's culture. It's, it's embraced. It's just considered a part of life, but not for, the, not, not for Christianity. God still calls us um, to honor marriage and to pursue uh, those things in marriage and to protect our marriage, as he talks about here, from adultery. But we live in a culture um, where these things are, um, marriage is not honored as it, as it once was. Immorality runs rampant. Um, adultery um, it, it, is, is, it runs rampant. But, but you know, it, it, it did in their day as well. It was, it's not like these are new things. Sexual immorality and adultery. He's addressing them then because these things were going on in their culture as well, and they go on in our culture all these years later. We, we, in our culture today, we, we, live in a, we live in a culture today where even things like pornography are rampant. You know, technology, with all the good things that it's brought, is also, uh, there's also dangers out there, pornography being one of them. You know, did you know that's a multi-billion dollar industry? Let me give you some stats that are from the website Covenant Eyes. Um, did you know that one-fifth of mobile searches are for pornography? One-fifth uh, of all the searches, uh, when people pick up their phones and do a search, right, um, on, on, their, uh, on their internet, they're on their phone, one-fifth of them are, 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 are they're looking for pornography. That's the culture we live in. 64% of quote-unquote Christian men and 15% of quote-unquote Christian women, um, these are professing Christian men and women, say they view porn at least once a month. They view pornography at least once a month. That's how rampant it is, even among those who profess Christ. 56% of divorces involved one party having, quote, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 56%. And listen to this quote off of, uh, from, from uh, the folks at Covenant Eyes. Quote, prolonged exposure to pornography leads to lack of attraction to family and child raising. That sh- shouldn't be as a shock, right? It should, it's against God's design. It warps God's, uh, how, how God would have us to, v- to view others. It, it's, 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 it's bad for your marriage. It's bad for you. It's bad for culture. It, it's all these things that rebel against God's design that are sinful and that are evil. Um, they don't bring good things. They bring destruction. So he warns us here in Hebrews. He's saying, man, you need to, you need to protect your marriage bed. Pornography is a liar, a thief, and a killer. And you want to honor marriage, you want to keep your marriage bed undefiled, you need to keep pornography and things like that out of your life and, and all sorts of immorality and adulterous relationships. You need, to, you need to repent and receive God's grace. And if you need help, you need to get help. But we, gotta, we need to be pursuing purity in our lives. A life of worship before a holy God means valuing marriage and sexual purity and what we do with our bodies and what we do with our minds and our lives matter. The Christian life, we'll say this over and over again, impacts everything, which brings us to another category. Look at verse 3, excuse me, verse 5, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Number three, number three, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. He, he lays it out right there. He hammers two major idols here in these verses, right? Uh, he's, hammer, he's hammered the, the idol of sex, <laughs> which is a big idol in our culture, and the, and, and he's in, in the idol of money. You know, the world, the world uses their bodies and money to feed idols, 
Uh, we are to use our bodies and our money to, to worship God. Um, it, it, it's all, worship, in a lot of ways, no matter what you worship, uh, really does come down to what you do with your body and your money many times. And Christians, we are to honor God with our bodies and honor God with our money. And he gives us something to avoid here and something to remember. Something to avoid is the love of money, right? Apostle Paul said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's like a, a gateway sin, if you will. It opens the door to all sorts of problems. Uh, in the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs and in the New Testament, both Jesus and the apostles warn against greed and the dangers of it. So here he says, keep your life free from it because it wants to dominate you. It wants to ensnare you and enslave you. And the love of money is a cruel and an abusive ruler. And it wants to enslave you and, and ultimately it will, it, will, it, will, it will ruin your life. Rather than be consumed with greed, we're called to be content with what? With what we already have. Content means to be satisfied, to be sufficient. Contentment is the, is the way to freedom, in other words. The way to the freedom from the love of money is to be content with what you have. That's how you keep from being ensnared with this and enslaved to this greed, this love of money. Now, our culture is overrun with the lust for more. So we Christians even deal with this temptation all the time. It's something we have to wrestle with in our lives, and we have to put away from us, and we have to, uh, to go before God, and we have to, to seek to pursue um, contentment and generosity and not be uh, enslaved uh, to greed and a love of money. Let me ask you, do you have a smartphone? Probably do. You might even be watching this on it, an iPhone or an Android. Think about it. 40 years ago, that looked like something from Star Wars. I mean, it really did. I mean, I mean, just to imagine the technology that we have today um, and, and, the, and the abundance of wealth that has helped create it. You know, we, we, we get in our cars with heated seats and we, we drive um, through a, a line where we, we pay $5 for a cup of uh, bean water, you know, and, um, and, and, and then in, and we, and we want more. We get in airplanes and we, we, we fly across the world to wherever we, we want to go. And we just, all the things that we have around us and the opportunity, huge boxes of stuff at home um, in our closets many times or in our garage or somewhere, stuff maybe we don't even need sometimes, that we, and then we, we don't think we have enough stuff. This is our culture, right? And um, this is what we, we have, to, we have to, to think about, is that we, we have, we've been blessed in a lot of ways. We, we, we have a lot compared to other people, many other people in the world. And it's not, the problem is not having money, right? He, that's not what he calls out here. He, say, he doesn't say, hey, uh, be free of money. He says, be free of the love of money. But what we have to realize is when we have it, and the more we have of it, um, we can be more and more tempted to love it. And even if you don't have a lot of it, or don't think you have a lot of it, you can be, t there's still that temptation there. Well, if I just had more money, that would fix my problems. Uh, the love of money can manifest itself in a lot of ways. Whether you have money, a lot of money, or whether you feel like you don't have a lot of money, you can still be enslaved to the love of money. And Christmas is a great reminder for us to be content with what we have. I know that doesn't mean don't buy nice gifts for your kids or something like that, but it does mean don't get swept up in the love of money, the love of stuff that enslaves our culture. Now, I mentioned um, during our announcement period uh, that we're doing this Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And what a way to, you know, I used to think, um, what a weird time of year to take up a missions offering. 
right? Christmas, people are spending money on gifts and all that sort of stuff, but maybe we need it right there as a reminder for us uh, what we're really supposed to be all about and that if Christmas is really about Christ, um, shouldn't it also be about his mission of reaching unchurched, unbelieving people with the gospel? And uh, what better way to, to remind ourselves of that but by participating in that Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So I just continue to encourage you to pray about what would God have you to give towards mission work around the world this Christmas, uh, to pray about that and to go to gonorthpart.com and click the give link and give there to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Now, something, he, gives us something, he gives us something to avoid, right? But he gives us something to remember. He, he, says, he says that God, he reminds us here, a quote here, he says, the Lord is my helper. I, he says, well, I will never leave you nor ne- or forsake you. And then he says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So he reminds us of the presence of God and he reminds us, if you will, of the power of God. God will never leave or forsake his children. Right, he's, he's with us always. Our generous God has given us the greatest gift. He's given us himself. And then the power of God, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. It's God who takes care of me, provides for me, uh, looks out for me, watches over me. Why should I be filled with worry? Why should I be filled with fear? Uh, when, when, when God is the Lord is my helper. You know, a great illustration to think about, and when you think about this passage, is the idea of Christmas and the idea of Emmanuel. Right, His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God sent His Son. Right, He has, he has come to us. Jesus came. The Son of God came uh, to, to, to walk this earth and live a sinless life. 100% God, 100% man. To live the sinless life we can't live so that He could go to the cross and die the death we deserve to die. Being uh, taking our sin upon Him. Taking the judgment, the wrath we deserve. And dying for our sins and being raised from the dead. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says you, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. God never leaves, never forsakes. Listen, Emmanuel has come, God with us, and he hasn't left us, forsaken us. He's not left us alone, right? Jesus says, Jesus says I'm not gonna abandon you, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, but I'm gonna send my spirit. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, the helper, to be with you. We are not abandoned, Right? The Christmas is a reminder that when, when humanity was at this dark point and we were lost in our sin, Emmanuel comes, God with us. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder that as believers in Christ, we never have to be alone. So shouldn't we of all people be the most content? Shouldn't we all be the most content? Because some of us have more stuff than others. But in Christ, we all have what matters most, a relationship with God. Pursue contentment this Christmas. Guard against the love of money. Seek to be generous and to live with contentment. Now look down at verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Number four, we need to heed godly leadership. You know, a couple of times in chapter 13, he points out the need for the heed godly leadership. We're going to read, uh, we're going to skip down and we're going to read some more here in just a minute because we need leadership. The church needs leadership. Believers need leadership. God has designed us this way and he's designed his people to operate this way. So he says, remember your leaders. Now, most commentators believe here he is referring to those, who have gone uh, those who've already passed away. Believers who have taught the word of God to them but have gone on to be with the Lord. 
And he's saying, you know, think about their outcome uh, and their, their way of life. And he says, imitate their faith. And so he gives us some things here uh, in chapter 13, some ways to relate to godly leadership. The first one is to imitate, right? He says that this, we can see how the Christian faith is lived out and we need godly leaders who show us how to live the Christian faith, uh, not perfectly, but consistently and growing more like Jesus. And, 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 and it gives us, uh, so we can kind of know, we can see their faith, especially those, he says, who have here, who have gone on. And he says we can, we can learn things from them. And he says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's, he's the one we're growing to be like. He's the one uh, that we're following. He hasn't changed. So what it looks like to follow Jesus hasn't really changed. So we can learn from others. And when others fail us, and leaders sometimes will, Jesus doesn't because he never changes. People change. People fail. He never changes. He never fails. So there's the idea of imitation, but there's also obedience. He calls us to obey down in verse 17. Let me read that to you. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now this would speak to current leaders in the church. As, as they taught the word of God, instructed them in the faith, they were to obey, to submit. Why? Because he says they're keeping watch over your souls. Leaders are accountable to God for what they teach, how they teach, how they live, how they lead. And the goal of the church is for this work to be joyful for the leader, not a groan. Because he says that's not good for anybody, right? It's a groan for the leader, but he also says it's not, it's not to the advantage of, of the believers, not to the advantage of the, the church either. Right, the, the idea is uh, that as the, the leader teaches the Word of God and it, it teaches it accurately, uh, you are to obey the Word of God. Um, Dr. Al Mower says this. He says, This instruction is not some obscure statement of cultic authority. Insofar as the leaders teach in accordance with God's Word, they are to be obeyed and their and, 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 and they're teaching taken seriously. What they teach taken seriously. That's a great reminder because all uh, teachers of God's word, all leaders are accountable um, to, to God and must teach in accordance with his word. We all come under the word of God. The ultimate authority is God and his word. So we need to obey the teaching of the word of God. We need to obey leaders, he says, um, as, as of course they, as they teach properly and instruct in the word of God. And then he says, he encourages them to pray. To pray. In verse 18, he says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So is you know, is him as a leader, you know, is he is he is he seeking to have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things? He says, Pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. And we need to pray for leaders. And and I encourage you to pray for the for for me and other church leaders at, at North Park, pray uh, for your pastor. Pray for your deacons. Uh, in, in wherever you go to church, if you're watching, you go somewhere else, pray for your pastors. Pray for uh, your church leaders. Pray for those who serve in various ways on staff. Pray for your church staff. Pray for folks. Pray uh, for leadership um, because we, we certainly need it. And he says, we do this understanding Jesus is our chief leader and God is our, is our chief equipper. Let me skip down to it. He gives a benediction towards the end of the chapter here. Let me read it to you. Chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he points out here that the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, he says of the sheep is Jesus. 
Uh, pastors are under shepherds. The ultimate leader, the chief shepherd, is the great shepherd, Jesus. God's people are Jesus' sheep. It, it, they, they belong to Jesus. This is his church. North, North Park is his church. Um, the church is ultimately subject to the Lord Jesus, the one who has purchased it by his blood. And every Christian leader worth following understands this and lives their life yielded to Jesus and stewards their leadership to point people ultimately to Jesus. He's the boss. He's the one in charge. And he's also the main equipper. You know, um, in Ephesians, it talks about how leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But here he says, what? God will equip you with everything good that you may do as well. The ultimate equipper is God, right? The role of leaders in the church is to equip, yes, but ultimately we do this by teaching God's word and pointing people to Jesus. And ultimately, God takes care of the equipment as he, as he uses the teaching and as he uses the word of God. And by his spirit, he equips people to do his will. But don't miss that part of faithful Christian living of living our lives as acceptable worship is having godly leadership in our lives. Uh, you can't be a faithful Christian and not be connected to the local church. Uh, there is no such thing as Christian faithfulness apart from Christian fellowship. You won't find that in the New Testament. We need the fellowship of other believers. We need to be a part of the body of Christ. And uh, those churches need leadership. This is the way God has designed things to work. When we try to do things another way, we're ultimately rebelling against God's design, God's authority, and God's will. God wants us to be involved in the church, and God wants the church to have godly leadership. And, uh, and, and that's how God wants the church and the Christian life to operate. Now look down with me at verse 9, chapter 13, verses 9 through 12, or back up at verses 9 through 12. Do not be led astray, led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those who devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Uh, let's talk about this. Um, we need leaders, right, to teach the word of God so that God's people are not led away by diverse and strange teachings, as he talks about here, which do exist and still exist. And sometimes they mask themselves in a cloak of Christianity, right? And can still be some, uh, they claim to be Christian and can still be some diverse and some strange teachings that are out there. But in their day, it seems that there were some strange teachings related to foods likely rooted in taking the Old Testament law and forcing it upon New Testament believers. But it's God's grace, not what we eat or don't eat, that strengthens our hearts. And then there in verse 10, George Guthrie writes in verse 10, he says, the participants of the new covenant draw spiritual sustenance and life from a source unavailable to those of the tabernacle and the source of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what he's referring to, it seems, when he, when he says we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Then in verse 11, He's explaining, he talks about, you know, what happened to the bodies of the animals who were sacrificed under the old covenant. Well, they, were, they would take them outside the city gates to burn them outside the camp. And in verse 12, he says, Jesus suffered outside the gate to sanctify them. See the correlation he's making. To, why? To purify his people by his blood. Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. He is drawing this correlation between Jesus and the Old Testament sacrifices. But unlike the ones in the Old Testament, Jesus sanctifies by his blood. He's able to actually purify us and make us clean, to atone for our sin once and for all. And all of this fits in with the major theme of the book, that Jesus is what? The better sacrifice. The better high priest and the better offered the better sacrifice. Now look at verses 13 through 16. He says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, 
and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Number five, we need to follow and live for Jesus at all costs. We need to follow and live for Jesus at all costs. Our Lord suffered outside the camp, and we are called to go to him, bearing his reproach. What does this mean? I'm going to quote Dr. Moeller again. Dr. Al Moeller writes, the, the writer's uh, people were tempted to find their identity in Judaism and the Old Covenant instead of bearing his disgrace for the sake of Christ. They were looking for safety and security in something other than Jesus. Thus, the author is telling us that we must go outside the camp, even if it means we suffer, must suffer, in order to shine forth as his disciples. So for them it meant uh, they were not to depart from Christ and go back to the old covenant Judaism. For us, the temptation may be to go back into the world, to go, to go back to the life of sin. The point is we are to follow Jesus, to go after him no matter the cost, we follow Jesus. Even if it means suffering, even if it means persecution, even if it means pain, even if it means rejection, even if it means reproach, we follow Jesus. We go to him outside the camp, away from the world, away from other, no other religion. Jesus, we, we're, we follow Jesus. And we understand this city, this world that we live in, it, it will not last. Remember, chapter 12 tells us it will be shaken by God's judgment. We are living for the eternal city. This world is not our home. We can follow Jesus and live for him with confidence, willing to suffer, willing to be rejected, because we know this world is ultimately going to end and is not our home, but we have a lasting home with God. You know, I've mentioned the Lottie Moon Christmas offering a couple of times, so I want to talk to you just a moment about Lottie Moon as a great example of someone willing to just pursue Christ at all costs. You know, you can read about her um, on the IMB, the International Mission Board website, uh, which is where I got this information. Um, You know, she was a Baptist missionary. She left for China. She was a missionary to China. She left at the age of 32 for China. Uh, She actually turned down a marriage proposal. Now, you got to remember, this is back like 100 years ago. Turns down a marriage proposal, leaves her job, um, heads to China because she believed God was calling her to be a missionary there, and she ended up serving there for 39 years. And you can read all about her, like I said, on the IMB website. And it notes there on the website that she was, quote, feared and rejected by those she came to serve, right? She, she was an outsider, um, outside of their culture. And life, she, she had, she had to, she, but she goes, and you know what she did? She dove in, she changed the way she dressed, she learned the language of the people, and she shared Jesus with them. And over time, people came to know Christ. And it says there that, um, that she, she wrote once to the Foreign Mission Board, which is what the International Mission Board uh, was once called. She, she wrote to the Foreign Mission Board, she said this, quote, Please say to the, the new missionaries, they are coming to a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial. This is what it means to to follow Jesus at all costs. Hardship, responsibility, constant self-denial, whatever it takes to follow Jesus. He he wants me to go uh, to China? We go to China. What what does he want me to do? I follow Jesus. Oh, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be feared by them. I'm going to be looked at funny. Okay, well, he called me here. I'm going to go. She paints that picture for us as we follow Jesus outside the camp. We don't know what's going to come, but we know we must follow and obey Jesus and live for him. And he says we're to offer up the sacrifice of praise. We give thanks and testify to him with our lips. We acknowledge him in all that we do. 
We do good and share. We love others well, as we talked about earlier, as we saw at the beginning of, the, uh, of chapter 13. These are Christian sacrifices, he says. They, they please God. In other words, his point is, no, we don't kill animals and make sacrifices. We don't offer dead sacrifices. Jesus died for us. We don't need to do that. He died in our place once and for all. We don't need to offer another animal to God. But as those who follow the living Christ, who's been raised from the dead, the sacrifice we offer is praise to God, and it, it, the sacrifice that we offer is praise to God and love and service to others. We offer li- a li- our life as a living sacrifice. Not to earn our salvation, but in light of the fact that we are saved. Not to get God to love us because we understand that, in, that God does love us and that we're in Christ and what Christ has done for us and we want to please God. We live to please Him. And these sacrifices please Him. We need to follow Jesus outside the camp. Be willing to bear the reproach, the pain, the persecution, the rejection if it comes in order to follow and obey Jesus. We should be willing to be laughed at by the world. Have our eyes, have people's eyes rolled at us if need be. People to be just absolutely confused by our generosity and our kindness. Those things should make us stand out. We need to ultimately live our lives as acceptable worship before God and it should impact every part of our life. And that starts with trusting and following Jesus. Have you done that? Have you trusted Christ, the one that's so beautifully portrayed throughout the book of Hebrews who has offered the better sacrifice, the one who has come, laid his life down for you, who, who bore your sin in his body, who lived a sinless life that you couldn't live, died on the cross for your sins, t- accepting and pay, the, the judgment and the wrath, receiving the wrath you and I deserve, then being raised from the dead, so that if we would turn away from our sin and put our faith and trust in him, believing he died in our place on the cross and rose again, we can be saved. Have you received Jesus as Lord? Have you turned from sin to Christ and by faith received him into your life? Have you trusted him? If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do so today. If you've got questions about it, email us at info at gonorthpart.com. Call us, connect with us, let us uh, pray with you, talk with you. Or if you, if you call upon him today, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you look to him and call out in faith today, if you put your trust in him today, we'd love to celebrate with you. Send us an email, a phone call, let us know uh, so we can connect with you. It's the most important decision you will ever make. And as believers, let's continue to follow and live for Jesus no matter the cost. sharing, to live for him, to tell other people about him, no matter the cost. This world's not our home. So we need to leverage our lives towards eternity because ultimately our home is with Christ. And as a Christ follower, let's love others well. Let's honor marriage and pursue purity. Let's be content with what we have. Let's heed godly leadership. Let's live a life of acceptable worship. What a great way this Christmas to point people to Jesus, not just by singing Christmas carols and saying Merry Christmas. Live for Jesus in every area of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word today. Help us to walk in its truth. Help us to point people to Jesus. Help us to be willing to go to him outside the camp, to follow him, to live for him, and to make much of him of every area of our lives. Help us to make much of Jesus. And God, forgive us where we fell in these areas, because we do. It, from time to time, Lord, we, we don't love people, for instance, as, as, as well as we should. We can, we can grow in this. We can mature in this. So help us, Lord, to, to pursue um, growing in our faith, pursue obedience, um, to, 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 to live in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord, that makes much of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.